The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. Father, once again we gather together to worship you this morning. The highest form of worship is to study your word, to learn what you have revealed to us, that we might learn to think about life and reality as you have created it. Father, we pray that as we listen to the teaching of your word that we might align our thinking, align our thoughts to your word. As we come to understand all that you have given us in terms of our spiritual assets for the purpose of preparing us to rule and reign with you in the kingdom and the remarkable inheritance that you have laid aside for us, we pray that we might be motivated, stimulated, and challenged to continue to endure and persevere in the spiritual life that we may lay hold of the prize before us. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee, yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the word of God is alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to dividing asunder the soul and the spirit, and the joints and the marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Open the Word of God with me to Second Timothy chapter 2. Second Timothy chapter 2, verse 11. We have been studying the issue of inheritance, but before we get started, we must have a little humor. I can tell this morning that everybody either hasn't had enough caffeine or it hasn't kicked in yet. So we have the top ten t-shirts of the summer. Number one, this is the t-shirt. On the front of the t-shirt, there's a picture of a field of dandelions. Too bad Jim's not here this morning. I fought the lawn and the lawn won. T-shirt number two, if they don't have chocolate in heaven, I'm not going. Number three, at my age, I've seen it all. Done it all, heard it all. I just can't remember it all. <laughs> Number four, my mother is a travel agent for guilt trips. That was a slow burner, wasn't it? Number five, outline of the state of Minnesota on the front of the T-shirt. Underneath it says, my governor can beat up your governor. Number six, I didn't climb to the top of the food chain to be a vegetarian. Number seven, if you want breakfast in bed, sleep in the kitchen. Number eight, if at first you don't succeed, skydiving isn't for you. And number nine, old age comes at a bad time. And number 10, in America, anyone can be president. That's just one of the risks you take. <laughs> now, we have been studying one of the most important doctrines in the Scriptures, and that is in relation to the believer's inheritance. We have been studying through Galatians. And we came to the passage in Galatians chapter 5, verses 17 through 19, which describes the works of the flesh. At the end of the list enumerating the works of the flesh, there is the cryptic, at least to some, 
statement that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, as I have beaten this into you, you should know by now that the problem with that is that there are many people who take the phrase inherit the kingdom of God to be synonymous with entering into heaven, gaining eternal life. But if that's true, we have a conundrum, we have a problem, we have a tremendous contradiction in the Scriptures, for that implies that if you practice any of these sins, that you will not have eternal life, you will not be saved. And yet Scripture is clear that salvation is by grace through faith. It is not based on works of righteousness which we have done, but is based on what Christ has done for us. So we have taken the time to look at what the Scripture teaches about the phrase, inheriting the kingdom. Now, the phrase, the kingdom, refers specifically to the messianic kingdom. When Jesus Christ came at the first advent, put a one here and draw out our timeline, this was approximately 4 to 6 B.C. Now, one thing you should note in terms of chronology is nobody knows exactly when Jesus was born, and he wasn't born in the year zero. Back when they developed the Gregorian calendar, they just took sort of a, a shot guess at when Christ was born. And, and we know now from a number of historical documents and allusions in the Scriptures that Christ was born between what we would call 4 to 6 B.C. And the crucifixion occurred around 32-33 A.D. Incidentally, there is no year zero, so you always start with year one. Now, I'm trying not to get too upset and let my blood pressure go through the roof every time I hear people on the media and everybody rant and rave about how in a few months we're going to enter the new millennium. You start with year one. The last year in the century is year 100. It, the zero zero year is not the beginning. It is the end. On January 1st, 2000, we begin the last year of the 20th century. We do not begin the first year of the 21st century for another year. But, in true postmodern fashion, it doesn't really matter what content is, as long as you get to celebrate and feel good about it. So we'll all just join the postmodern parade and, and feel good about the millennia this year, even though it's not. Jesus was crucified approximately 33 A.D. and then rose from the dead, uh, rose from the dead, and then ascended into heaven approximately 40 days later, and then 50 days after Passover, you celebrated Pentecost. The Holy Spirit descended, and Pentecost marks the birth of the church and the beginning of the church age, which has an indefinite length. We don't know how long it will be. It ends with the rapture of the church when the dead in Christ will rise first, then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together to be with the Lord in the air. He comes in the air, in the clouds, at the rapture. Sometime after that, we don't know how long, it could be just a few months, it won't be a long time, the Antichrist, the prince who is to come in Daniel 9, will sign a peace treaty with Israel, and that marks the beginning point of the seven-year tribulation. The seven-year tribulation is a restoration of Israel to God's plan, it is designed to culminate the divine discipline on the nation Israel and bring the nation eventually to uh, repentance, change of mind towards Jesus Christ as Messiah and accept Him as their Savior. At the end of the tribulation, Jesus Christ returns at the second advent or second coming when He comes to the earth and then He will inaugurate a 1,000-year rule on the earth which is called the Millennium or the Messianic Kingdom. This is the phrase, inherit the kingdom. And we have seen in our study that there are two levels of inheritance, and we will come back to that a little more tonight according to Romans 8, 17. Heirs of God, category 1, and joint heirs with Jesus Christ, category 2. To qualify to be a joint, an heir of God, that is on the basis of grace, and what we will see clearly this morning is that to be a joint heir with Christ is based upon merit, and that is the basis of reward. Now, last Sunday morning, we looked at this 
passage that really trips up a lot of people in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 11-13, through 13, which reads, It is a trustworthy statement, for if we died with Him, that is, believers, the we refers to believers, dying with Him is positional truth, baptism at the Holy Spirit at the moment of salvation. We are entered into the top circle. This is union with Christ, faith alone in Christ alone through the Ministry of God the Holy Spirit, we are identified with Christ in His death, burial, and resurrection. And this is the realm of positional realities. There are 39 irrevocable positional realities and one revocable one, which is the filling of the Holy Spirit. If we died with Him, we shall also live with Him. That's the promise. If we died with Him, if you put your faith alone in Christ alone, that at that instant you were identified with His death, burial, and resurrection, according to Romans 6, 1 through 4. This is the baptism by means of God the Holy Spirit. You are identified with Christ. And the promise is, if that took place, then you will live with Him, eternal life. Verse 12, If we endure, we shall also reign with Him. Now, this shifts gears to talk about a different subject. It talks about endurance, hanging in there during the spiritual life what my mother used to call stick to not giving up. If we endure through the trials, through the testing, through all of the distractions of life, and you continue to keep focused on the goal of spiritual maturity, you continue to practice confession of sin, 1 John 1, 9, to recover from sin and carnality, to be restored to fellowship, recover the filling of the Holy Spirit, continue to advance, stay consistent in learning doctrine, coming to Bible class regularly, learning and applying doctrine, that is endurance. If you endure, you will mature. That's the promise of James 1, 2 through 4. We shall also reign with Him. So that is a condition there, that if you are going to have life, all you have to do is trust in Christ alone. But if you are going to reign, it is conditioned upon endurance. And we looked at the parable of the minas in Luke chapter 19, and in Luke chapter 19, we saw that there were different servants who were given different amounts of minas, and that represents the spiritual assets that we are given in Christ, and that when Christ left as the landowner, he left and he went back to uh, receive his kingdom, and when he returned from receiving his kingdom, he called for accountability to all of the the slaves. Some had invested what they were given and had a tenfold return. They were praised and they were going to have, they were going to reign over ten cities. The second one invested his one mina, got a fivefold return. He was not praised, but he was given a position of rulership over five cities. The last one did not invest because of his fear, because of his anxiety, for whatever reason. He failed to live up to his spiritual life, to grow, to apply his spiritual assets. So there was no investment, and he lost his reward. It was taken from him. He was denied. He did not lose his spiritual life, though. He did not lose his salvation. In the parable, there is another group of people. These are the citizens who reacted to the uh, heir, the overlord, who came back. They did not want him to rule over them. And they are comparable or analogous to unbelievers. And they were all killed. The slave was not killed. The uh, slave who was not uh, faithful was not killed. He just lost what he had. He was denied any inheritance. Then we went from that passage to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 11 through 15, where we looked at the judgment seat of Christ and we saw that there would be some believers who had production in their life that amounted to wood hay and straw, and others that had production that was positive under the filling of the Holy Spirit that produced gold, silver, and precious stones, and those would uh, have reward. But those who had all their works burned up still went to heaven, but they suffered loss. So we have seen that there is going to be a denial of reward to them. That is the meaning of this second half of verse 12. If we deny Him, if you as a believer in this life deny the Lord, either actually through physically denying the Lord, just rejecting Him, going completely negative to the Lord to the point that you decide that the Bible is just garbage and that the Lord never died for you. Nevertheless, 
you won't lose your salvation, but he will deny us. We will be denied rewards at the judgment seat of Christ, and there will be shame at the judgment seat of Christ. Verse 13, if we are faithless, that is the failure of the believer to advance in the spiritual life, even if we are faithless, the one who denies him, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. He will always be, remain faithful to his promise. Now, that brings us up to the end of last time. Now, the timing of our evaluation judgment is uncertain. The time of, our, of this judgment, when this occurs, when the rapture comes, is uncertain. For example, Revelation 22.12. Jesus says, this is at the conclusion of all the prophecies, all the revelation to John, Jesus gives this final exhortation to the Apostle John. He says, Behold, I am coming quickly. could happen at any moment. It is the Greek word takus, which means when these things start happening, everything will roll out very rapidly. And then Jesus says, And my reward is with me to render to every man according to what he has done. So there we see that rewards are based on merit not on grace. Salvation is based on grace, but reward is based on what you do with what God has graciously given you, all of the spiritual assets that have been bestowed upon you. 2 Corinthians 5.10 says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may be recompensed for his what? Deeds in the body, according to what he has done, whether good or bad. So, Revelation 22.12 and 2 Corinthians 5.10 emphasize the fact that rewards are based on what we do. And when it says there at the end of 5.10, whether good or bad, it is not talking about good or evil. The word for bad is phalos, as we saw, not kakos, which is evil. It means that which is of no value, that which has no enduring value. So it can be relatively good, but it has no enduring value. So now we must look at another aspect of inheritance that is very important to nail down this whole concept. And that is to understand that inheritance in the Bible is a little different from what we think of culturally. In our society, we think of cult, uh, of inheritance as when somebody passes away, when somebody dies, then whatever property they own is automatically transferred to their descendants. And that has as part of it the idea of possession, but primarily it has the idea of transference at death. Whereas inheritance in the, in the Old Testament and in the New Testament primarily has the connotation of possession. These are possessions. So let's look at, oh, about seven, eight, how many points do I have here? Ten points on inheritance as possession. Point number one. In the Old Testament, inheritance referred to the ownership of property, especially property that is passed down from one generation to another. In the Old Testament, inheritance referred primarily to ownership of property, but property that is passed down from one generation to another. And the reason you emphasize that, passing down from one generation to another, it's something that's not lost. It's a permanent possession. Point number two, let's see an example of this in Numbers 36.2. So turn in your Old Testament to the fourth book of the Pentateuch, Numbers 36.2, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers. Numbers 36.2, and we're going to examine the incident related to the inheritance of Zelophehad. Let's pick up the context in verse 1. In the heads of the father's households of the family of the sons of Gilead, the sons of Machir, the sons of Manasseh, of the families of the sons of Joseph. I want you to notice the emphasis here is on families and the tribal allotments that God had designated in the land. They're getting ready to go into the promised land of Canaan. This will be their inheritance. 
And to each tribal group, each of the twelve tribes of Israel, there is given an inheritance in the land. There is there's specific real estate that is demarcated for each specific tribe, with one exception, which we will see. Each tribe has a piece of real estate that is theirs. And this is referring to that which it belongs to the tribe of Manasseh. Now remember, Joseph had two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. So when you look at the twelve sons of, of uh, Isaac, of, I mean, yeah, twelve sons of Jacob, there were, uh, the twelfth was, was uh, Joseph. But Levi has a special case because Levi is pulled out and treated differently because they are a, a priestly tribe. So Joseph is replaced. There's no tribe of Joseph. He's replaced by his two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. So this relates to the son of Manasseh, the inheritance related to the tribe of Manasseh. The families of the sons of Joseph came near and spoke before Moses and before the leaders, the heads of the fathers, households of the sons of Israel. And they said, the Lord commanded my Lord, that my Lord, the second my Lord there would refer to Moses. The Lord commanded you, Moses, to give the land by lot to the sons of Israel as an inheritance. Now, let's start reading that word, inheritance is possession. They said, the Lord commanded my Lord to give the, lot, the land by lot to the sons of Israel as a, as a possession. And my Lord was commanded by the Lord to give the possession of Zelophehad, our brother, to his daughters. Now, Zelophehad had died, and he had no male heir. Now, in Israel, they followed the law of primogenitor. The eldest son received a double portion, and so inheritance always went through the male child. But Zelophehad had died with only daughters. And so now there's a problem. And the problem is that if Zelophehad's daughters marry outside the tribe of Manasseh, then this land that is Manasseh's land by right, it is their possession given by Moses, would then be... Tr- have the risk of being transferred outside the possession of Manasseh. It would go to their, they would marry somebody in the tribe of Judah, somebody in the tribe of, of Benjamin, somebody in the tribe of, uh, of, of uh, Issachar, and then they would have a, a son, and then their, the Zelophehad's land would pass outside the ownership of Manasseh. This is the problem they're concerned with. Verse 3, But if they marry one of the sons of the other tribes of the sons of Israel... Their inheritance, their possession will be withdrawn from the inheritance of our fathers and will be added to the inheritance of the tribe to which they belong. Let's bring this home. This is sort of like the attempt that the Indians down here are trying in order to buy up land from in the various townships around here and then convert it to their reservation. That's what's going on here. Does that bring it home to everybody? Okay, they're worried about losing their tax base. Let's get it down to money here. They're worried about losing their tax base and their possession because then everybody, everybody will owe a little more. I don't know if that's true. I'm being a little facetious with our current circumstance here. Verse 4, And when the jubilee of the sons of Israel comes, then their inheritance will be added to the inheritance of the tribe to which they belong. So their inheritance will be withdrawn from the inheritance of the tribe of our fathers. So in order to protect this property rights and that this property stays within the tribe of Manasseh, this is, this is uh, Moses' answer. Verse 6, let them, um, let them marry the last part of uh, verse 6. Let them marry whom they wish only. They must marry within the family of their tribe of their father. Thus, no inheritance of the sons of Israel shall be transferred from tri- tribe to tribe. For the sons of Israel shall each hold to the inheritance of the tribe of his father. So here we see how inheritance is treated as property rights. And the daughters of Zelophehad are restricted in their marriage to marry only within the tribe of Manasseh. And that way Manasseh will not lose any of their uh, real estate. It will stay within the tribe. They marry another member of the tribe of Manasseh. And then when they have sons, it will stay within the tribal boundaries and they won't lose real estate. So here we see the emphasis that inheritance is related to real property. That's point number three. Inheritance and property. The word inherit, the word property, the word possess, and the word own are interchangeable ideas. Inherit and property, possess and own 
are all interchangeable ideas. So inherit, therefore, means to have ownership in something. It means to have an actual possession in something. So when we look at the phrase inherit the kingdom, it means to have ownership, to have property rights within the messianic kingdom. Now, did everybody have ownership and property rights in the theocratic kingdom of Israel in the Old Testament? No, they did not. There were different groups who lived in the kingdom, but did not have an inheritance or possession within the kingdom. Let's look at a couple of examples. Turn over to Exodus chapter 12. Exodus chapter 12. Verse 48 and 49. This deals with the stranger. This would be the non-Jew, the Gentile, who was living in the land, or even a proselyte, a non-Jewish proselyte living in the land, was referred to as a stranger. Exodus 12:48 says, But if a stranger sojourn among you, sojourns with you, and celebrates the Passover to Yahweh, Let all his males be circumcised, and then let him come near to celebrate it. And he shall be like a native of the land, but no uncircumcised person may eat of it. Now, notice, at first it categorizes people into strangers and non-strangers. And the stranger could not celebrate the Passover unless he went through the rite of circumcision for for all the males in the family. And only then could he celebrate Passover and be what? Notice the comparative verb here. It's a, in the Hebrew, it shows similarity but not exactness. He is going to be like a native in the land, like in the sense that he can be, he can participate in the Passover ritual, but he is still not a Jew. He is still not an owner of the covenant. He is not an Israelite. Exodus 12.49, the same law shall apply to the native as to the stranger who sojourns among you. So we see that there are those who lived in the land who were not owners in the land. And then another important case is in Numbers chapter 18, verses 20 and 24, so we can turn back there. Numbers 18, one of the interesting things that you should note is that throughout some of these references, we're seeing the establishment of case law. This is the establishment of precedent, which is a foundation for English law. That is why when you go to court, the issue is going back into previous cases to establish what the legal precedents are, and those legal precedents establish interpretation of law. This is why when you get into a postmodern environment where original situations in space-time history no longer matter, and you can start reinterpreting everything, that the danger there legally is that precedence no longer matters, so that you then make the law mean whatever you want it to mean at the current time. So there are a lot of dangerous implications to postmodernism. And if you haven't been here on Wednesday night for our study of postmodernism, you better get the tapes or you won't know what I'm talking about. Numbers 18. This is the Lord's instructions to Aaron and to the priests of Israel. Then the Lord said to Aaron, You shall have no inheritance in the land. Now, did Aaron have eternal life? Yes. Who was Aaron? Aaron is the high priest of Israel. Aaron is of the tribe of Levi. So we're not talking about something that's related to eternal life. It's not related to salvation. He's saying, You shall have no inheritance in their land, nor own any portion among them. I am your portion and your inheritance among the sons of Israel. So we see in this one verse that there are two distinct inheritances or possessions in Israel. One is possession of the land. The other is possession of God. God says, I'm your portion. I am your inheritance. So there is something that all believers had, which is their inheritance with God. And then there is a second additional inheritance, which was the possession in the land. And as we will see, possession in the land is going to be conditioned upon obedience to the Mosaic Law. That's why you have the five cycles of discipline, the cursing and blessings at the end of Deuteronomy as a warning that if you do not obey the law, the land will be taken from you. You will still have what? 
an inheritance with God, but you will no longer have a possession in the land. So we're seeing that even in the Old Testament, we see this distinction. Now, this is important because in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, we're told that all of these things happened in the Old Testament as a tupas, as a type, as an example to us in the New Testament. So by going back and looking at what happens with Israel, we see it as as sort of a a teaching model in a very physical, concrete way, the illustration of what the New Testament is going to talk about in terms of the believer's future inheritance. So the Lord tells Aaron that you shall have no inheritance in the land or any portion among them. I am your portion and your inheritance among the sons of Israel. And then in verse 24, Numbers 18, For the tithe of the sons of Israel which they offer as an offering to the Lord. Now, tithe means one-tenth. And it always surprises certain people who come out of religious backgrounds that there were three distinct tithes in the Old Testament. There were no tithes mandated, key word, no tithes mandated until the Mosaic Law. Abraham did give a tenth of his spoil after he defeated the five kings. He gave one-tenth of the spoil to Melchizedek, the high priest of Salem, which became Jerusalem. But why he gave 10%, nobody knows. That was a free will offering. There was no mandate to do that. When you get into the Mosaic Law, there are three distinct tithes. 10% is given to the state because it's a theocratic kingdom. Therefore, the just as in our democracy, we our representative republic, we have a government and then there's a massive bureaucracy that supports it. And in order to pay the salaries of all of those bureaucrats, we are taxed. That's what the tithe was in Israel. Part of the tithe, one tithe, went to support the priests and the Levites. They, in essence, in a theocracy, which means God, God rules, where God is, serves as the king of, of the nation, the tithe of the one tithe went to support the priests and Levites. For the tithe of the sons of Israel, which they offer as an offering to the Lord, I have given to the Levites for an inheritance. Therefore, I have said concerning them, they shall have no inheritance, no possession among the sons of Israel. So the whole tribe of Levi, the priests, do not own land. They do not have an inheritance in the land. So the point that I'm drilling home is that in the Old Testament, inheritance means possession. And not everyone who lived in the theocratic kingdom had a possession in the theocratic kingdom. So you can live in the kingdom but not be an owner of the kingdom. Furthermore, we know that even Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob lived in the promised land, but they never owned any of the promised land. Hebrews 11.3 says, By faith we understand that the uh, worlds were prepared by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things which are visible. And I've got the wrong verse down there. That must be Hebrews 11.13. Let me look it up real quick. Hebrews chapter 11, verse uh, 13. All these, referring to Abraham, all these died in faith without receiving the promises, but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance and having confessed, they were strangers and exiles. And the New American Standard translates it on the earth, but frequently the word translated earth refers, especially in a Jewish context, to the land. Gay refers to the land. They were strangers and exiles in the land. That's a reference to the promised land. That's Hebrews 11.13. Genesis 21.33 says that Abraham planted a tamarisk tree of Beersheba, and there he called on the name of Yahweh, the everlasting God. Genesis 35:27 And Jacob came to his father Isaac in Mamre at Kiriath Arba where Abraham and Isaac had sojourned. Sojourning is a term for living there but they didn't own any land. They just they were like Bedouins. They they just traveled around but they had no ownership in the land. The point is that in the Old Testament inheritance means possession in the kingdom and not everyone who lives in the land possesses the land. 
Point number five. Even in the millennial kingdom, not all who dwell there will possess it. Even in the millennial kingdom, not all who dwell there will possess it. And this we find in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 50. Now there's a clear reference to Jesus prior to the resurrection of Christ as flesh and blood. But the reference, interestingly, of his resurrection body describes it as flesh and bone. 1 Corinthians 15:50 says, Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does perishable inherit the imperishable. So when we come into the millennial kingdom, you can't inherit, you can't own, you can't possess, the, be a possessor, an owner of the kingdom if you're flesh and blood. But during the tribulation period, during this period, there are going to be a number of tribulation saints who survive and they go into the tribulation period I mean, they go into the millennial kingdom and they marry and they have children. They still have their physical bodies. They don't have a resurrection body. They are still flesh and blood. So the inhabitants of the, the earthly inhabitants of the millennial kingdom, the tribulation saints who survive, are flesh and blood. They are living in the millennial kingdom, but they are not possessors of the millennial kingdom. 1 Corinthians 15.50, point number 6. Inheritance was a, viewed as a reward of obedience. It was not given on the basis of grace. Inheritance was a reward of obedience. Inheritance was not given on the basis of grace. Joshua chapter 14, verse 8 and 9. Joshua 14 Verses 8 and 9. Nevertheless, my brethren, nevertheless, my brethren who went up with me made the heart of the people melt with fear, but I followed the Lord my God fully. So Moses swore on that day, saying, Surely the land on which your foot has trodden shall be an inheritance to you and to your children forever, because you have followed the Lord my God fully. Now, what's the framework there? The framework goes back to Kadesh Barnea. Kadesh Barnea, the children of Israel, were going into the promised land. I'm out of paper. The children of Israel were going into the promised land. And as they were on the verge of entering into the promised land, this is the Exodus generation, they sent 12 spies. And you go back to Numbers 11 and you read the episode there at Kadesh Barnea. And they were supposed to go into the land to spy it out to see... Not if they could take it, but how they were going to take it. It was just to do a recon move, and they misunderstand what the op order was. And when they got in, they decided we can't do it. Well, they weren't there to see if they could do it. They were to see how they were going to do it, because God had already promised and given it to them. And when the 12 spies came back, the only two that said, it doesn't matter if there are giants in the land or fortified cities or how many people there are. God gave it to us so we can take it. And those two people were Joshua and Caleb. And so this is a reference to what took place at Kadesh Barnea. And God and Moses swore on that day to, um, on that day meaning that day at Kadesh Barnea, swore to, to Joshua, Surely the land on which your foot has trodden shall be a possession to you. Why? Why did Joshua and Caleb, the only two in that entire generation, have a possession in the land? Because they obeyed the Lord. It will be an inheritance to you and your children forever because you have followed the Lord my God fully. So that possession, that inheritance is not based on grace. It's based on their obedience to God fully. Point number seven. Possession of the land, therefore, was conditioned on obedience. And as a being conditioned on obedience, it could be lost. Important principle. Inheritance is conditioned on obedience so it can be lost with disobedience. Genesis 17:14 says, But an uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that person shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. So if a Jew refused circumcision, he would lose inheritance. So his possession was predicated on his obedience to the Mosaic Law. 
And then Numbers 14.24 refers to Caleb. We already saw the episode referring to Joshua. Numbers 14.24 referring to Caleb, we read, But my servant Caleb, because he has had a different spirit, he's not like everybody else in the nation with the exception of Joshua, who looked at the opposition in the promised land and retreated in fear, because he has had a different spirit and has followed me fully, I will bring into the land which he entered and his descendants shall take possession of it. So possession there is given to Caleb. Possession of the land was given to Joshua. Both of them survived, went into the promised land, and saw their inheritance, their possession. But everybody else in the Exodus generation, everybody else in the Exodus generation who were believers, who escaped from from, uh, Egypt, went through, saw all the miracles of the Exodus, saw all the miracles in the wilderness, but they disobeyed God at Kadesh Barnea. They were still saved, but they lost their inheritance. That's the point. They were saved, but they lost their inheritance because inheritance that is based upon obedience can be lost through disobedience. It was theirs. It was given to them. But when they disobeyed God at Kadesh Barnea, it was taken away. Point number eight, the entire Exodus generation had become God's firstborn son. God announced that in Exodus 4, 22 to 23, that the nation Israel was adopted as God's firstborn son. That means as the firstborn son in that culture, they were to receive a double portion of inheritance. The entire Exodus generation was God's firstborn son, yet with the exception of Caleb and Joshua, They forfeited that inheritance through disobedience. God disinherited them at Kadesh Barnea, but they did not lose their salvation. Point number nine. Though not all have an inheritance in the land, all have God as their inheritance and their possession. Psalm 73.26 My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. That word portion is another word based on on the Hebrew word for inheritance. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion, my inheritance forever. So we see two categories of inheritance. An inheritance of God and an inheritance in the land. The inheritance of God is based on grace. Inheritance in the land is based on obedience. Psalm 119.57 The Lord, Yahweh, is my portion. I have promised to keep thy words. And Psalm 142.5 I cried out to thee, O Yahweh, I said, Thou art my refuge, my portion, my inheritance in the land of the living. And point number ten, conclusion, inheritance is different from entrance or living in the land. Inheritance refers to possession. So inheriting the kingdom of God indicates possessing and owning the kingdom of God and refers to those like the two faithful servants, those who will rule and reign in the millennial kingdom. Back to our diagram here. Everything that we're talking about to relate it to the soul fortress we've covered in James on Wednesday night is related to that sixth stress buster, the sixth problem-solving device, personal sense of our eternal destiny, realizing that what we are in pursuit of is an inheritance, a reward for the millennial kingdom. We are living here in the church age. You are given roughly... Three score and ten years to live. Ephesians 5.17 says that you are to redeem the time. You are given a vast array of spiritual assets. Ephesians 1.3 says you are given every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies. You have the word, completed canon of Scripture, the Word of God, a vast array of Bible doctrine. You know everything that God's provided for you at the cross. And you are to take this phenomenal wealth of resource from spiritual assets to physical talents and invest them in time for the eternal kingdom of God. This is the picture. And then at the judgment seat of Christ, 
which takes place at the Bema Seat, which takes place during the seven-year tribulation, you will be evaluated on the basis of that. Everyone will be an heir of God, but only those who endure and suffer with Jesus, Romans 8.17, will be considered joint heirs with Jesus Christ. These will receive rewards and inheritance and will rule and reign with Him. All other believers will suffer loss. There will be shame at the judgment seat of Christ. And they will live in the kingdom, but they will not be heirs of the kingdom. So now we need to look at the whole doctrine of the firstborn and who is the inheritor of the kingdom. Point number one. Jesus Christ is the firstborn. He is the heir of the kingdom. Jesus Christ is the firstborn. He is the heir of the kingdom. Romans 8.29 For whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. And then we come to the important phrase, the purpose clause at the end of 8.29 that He might be, He being Jesus Christ, that He might be the firstborn among many brethren. Firstborn is a technical term. It comes from with a rich and this takes us to point number two. The firstborn receives a double portion of inheritance. The firstborn receives the double portion of inheritance. So the kingdom, the messianic kingdom, goes to Jesus Christ, who is the firstborn. Point number one: Jesus Christ is the firstborn. He's the heir of the kingdom. Romans eight twenty nine. Point number two, the firstborn receives a double portion. Deuteronomy 21, 15 through 17. Deuteronomy 21, 15 through 17, another example of case law. If a man has two wives, the one loved and the other unloved, and both the loved and the unloved have borne sons, if the firstborn son belongs to the unloved, then it shall be in the day he wills what he has to his sons, he cannot make the son of the loved the firstborn before the son of the unloved who is the firstborn. This was designed to protect the inheritance and to protect the, the wife who wasn't loved. If a man had two wives, he loved one, didn't love the other. He couldn't just ignore the one that was unloved. She's, her rights are protected by law. He could not just discard her and discard her children. If her son was the firstborn, then he's, his, rights, his inheritance rights are protected by law. 21.17 But he shall acknowledge the firstborn, the son of the unloved, by giving him a double portion of all that he has, for he is the beginning of his strength. To him belongs the right of the firstborn. So the right of the firstborn is a double portion. He receives the inheritance. This brings us to point number three, asking the question then, who owns or possesses the kingdom? who owns or possesses the kingdom. It is Jesus. Psalm 89.27, Yahweh is speaking. I also make Him, referring to Jesus Christ, the Messiah, I also shall make Him my firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. Luke 1.32, He will be great and we call the Son of the Most High and the Lord God will give Him the throne of His father David. This is His inheritance as the firstborn. Luke 1.33, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Psalm 2.8, Ask of me, and I will surely give thee, or ask of me, and I will surely give thee the nations as thine inheritance, and the very ends of the earth as thy possession. This is God the Father talking to God the Son at the Council of Divine Decree, Psalm 2.8. Ask of me, and I will give thee the nations as thine inheritance, and the very ends of the earth as thy possession. And then Hebrews 1-2, In these last days He has spoken to us in His Son, whom He, God the Father, appointed heir of all things, through whom also He made the world. So the picture is that Jesus Christ is the heir. Everything is given to Him as the double portion due to the firstborn, the preeminent one of all creation. When the term firstborn is applied to Jesus Christ, it does not mean that there was a time when Christ was not. That's the old Arian heresy going back into the 4th century. Firstborn, prototokos in the Scriptures, refers to His preeminence. He is before all things. He is the one who has the right 
to all things because he created all things. That's the point there of Hebrews 1, 2, through whom also he made the world. Point number four then. The believer then becomes a joint heir with, G- with Christ and it is different from being an heir with God. Now that brings us to our last key verse here. So let's look at Romans 8, 17. Romans chapter 8, verse 17. And we're going to start tying this whole study of inheritance together. Romans eight seventeen. Verse 16 says, because the sentence begins in verse 16, the Spirit, that is the Holy Spirit Himself, bears witness. That is, that the Holy Spirit, who has regenerated the believer, now has an inarticulate ministry of confirmation to the believer's soul that the believer knows that he is a child of God. You have a sense, a conviction, that you are a child of God. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Now, you have to watch how you punctuate this. Now, I always state this because it's important to realize that there is no punctuation in the original Greek. The New Testament was originally written in Koine Greek. And many of the older manuscripts are what were called uncials. And an uncial manuscript was all capital letters. There were no spaces between the words. If you ever look at an uncial, it's very difficult to read. There are no spaces between words. There are no periods. There are no paragraph marks. There are no quotation marks. All of this is indicated by style in the original. So you have to know the language well enough. And if you know English well enough and you're well read, you could do that. You could see a whole string of letters and you could sit there and concentrate. And after a few minutes, you'd be amazed at how easily you could pick up what was being said, and you could tell where punctuation should be inserted. But as a, when you come to the Greek Testament and you look at the text and you see where certain paragraphs are divided, where certain uh, periods are placed, quotation marks are placed, commas are placed, all these things, that's not in the original. That is not the God-breathed Scripture. That is inserted by the translator and is often influenced by their theological framework. So you have to, that's why it's important for a pastor to, to know these things and to know the original languages. For example, most of your English version, just because it reads better in English, break Ephesians 1, 3 through about 18 or 19, somewhere down there, into about three or four different sentences. In the original Greek, it's just one long, compound, complex, convoluted sentence, which shows how incredibly detailed the thought of the Apostle Paul was. But most English versions break it down so that we can understand it. Now, we have to look at the punctuation and repunctuate verses 16 and 17. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God, comma. That's one category. This is not talking of, this is not a phrase in the original Greek where heirs of God and fellow heirs or joint heirs with Christ are seen as synonymous concepts. They are two distinct concepts, so you should insert a comma after heirs of God. And if children, heirs also. Category 1 heir is an heir of God, and category 2 heir is a joint heir with Christ, if indeed we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. Now, why am I justified in that? Let's go back and look at this in a little more detail. You don't even have to know much Greek to figure this out. If, this, if heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ are the same thing, then watch your conditional clause. It's a first-class condition in the Greek. If indeed we suffer with Him would then be the condition for being an heir of God and a child of God. That is placing a condition upon salvation and making salvation works and not grace. So that's why you have to be very careful with these things. Somebody wasn't on their toes or some legalist translated this passage and didn't understand what he was doing. 
If children, heirs also, heirs of God, that is every single believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. You are an heir of God. You have eternal life. Eternal life is your possession based on faith alone in Christ alone. It is by grace. It is not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy He saved us, Titus 3.5. So you have category one, heirs of God, and category two, joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with Him. This is tantamount to what we read in Second Timothy 2.11 and 12, that if we endure with Him, we shall also reign with Him. So that... At one level, you have an inheritance that is based on grace, and then there is a second inheritance that is based on obedience or merit. We are joint heirs with Christ if indeed we suffer with Him in order that we might also be glorified with Him. This same idea is reiterated in three distinct passages in Revelation. Revelation 2.26 says, and he who over, are two passages, Revelation 2.26 and 27, and then Revelation 3.21. In Revelation 2.26 and 27 we read, And he who overcomes, and he who keeps my deeds until the end. What's that? That's perseverance. He who endures will reign with him. Revelation 2.26, He who overcomes, and he who keeps my deeds until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. That is Johannine terminology for what Paul says in, in Timothy, if we endure we will reign with him. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron as the vessels of the potter are broken to pieces as I also have received authority from my Father. And then Revelation 3.21, He who overcomes, that is endurance, he who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my Father on his throne. So we see that if we endure, we shall reign with him. But if we deny him through either our life through our words or our works, if we refuse to grow spiritually, if doctrine is not the highest priority in our life, if we are not advancing, learning the Word of God, making that the highest priority, then He will deny us, deny us rewards, deny us position and privilege and ownership in the kingdom. We will be there, but we will not own it or possess it. Conclusion. One, inheritance means possession, and there are two kinds of inheritance. Inheritance means possession, and there are two kinds of inheritance. Point number two. The first is heirs of God, which is tantamount to heirs of eternal life. This is free and is based on the undeserved merit of God. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. Zoan Ionos. Same phrase, all through here for eternal life. John 5.24, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment but is passed out of death into life. John 6.40, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him may have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. You see, salvation is by grace. It is a free gift. You don't have to do anything to earn it. Or deserve it, you can do nothing to earn it or deserve it. And if you try to earn it or deserve it, you will lose it. And in the end of, let me see if I can find this passage. The end of Revelation, we're told that, that anyone can come and freely drink of the water. Freely drink of the water of life. It is a free gift. Revelation 22:17 and the spirit and the bride say come and let the one who hears say come and let the one who is thirsty come let the one who wishes take the water of life without cost it is free so if you are here this morning and you're not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ you have the opportunity to have eternal life all you have to do is accept Jesus Christ as your savior and you will have eternal life it is a free gift You will be an heir of God. But, for those of you who are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, there is something more. Point number three. There are aspects of eternal life which are said to be earned. Surprise. Aspects of eternal life are said to be earned. These are those difficult passages you have to wade through in the Scriptures. Of the 42 times in the Greek that the phrase ionos zoen 
occurs, eternal life, 11 times in 11 passages it is worked for. 11 times it is worked for. This adds a dimension to the quality of life in eternity that is based on a closer relationship with the Lord. Listen to these verses, John 12, 25. He who loves his life loses it. And he who hates his life in this world shall keep it to life eternal. That's making eternal life predicating it on the condition of loving your life, of losing your life and making God the highest priority. John 12:26. If anyone serves me, let him follow me. And where I am, there shall my servant also be. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. So it's talking in that whole context of John 12, 25 and 26 of serving the Lord is a key to life eternal. John 17, 3. And this is eternal life that they may know Thee, the only true God, in Jesus Christ, whom Thou hast sent. So it defines eternal life in John 17, 3 as a special category of intimate knowledge with God that goes simply beyond salvation. Galatians 6, 8, For the one who sows to his own flesh shall from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit shall from the Spirit reap eternal life. There, eternal life is conditioned upon living the spiritual life. That's at the conclusion of this entire section we're studying in Galatians 5 on walking by means of the Spirit. Point four, rulership and reigning in the kingdom is presented as the result of obedience and spiritual growth in this life. Ruling and reigning is the result of obedience and spiritual growth in this life. Luke 19, and we saw that in 1 Timothy 2, 11 through 13. Point number five, I'm just wrapping up in terms of review Point number five, at the judgment seat of Christ, there are rewards given for those who advance to spiritual maturity and who are advancing to spiritual maturity, and there are rewards that are taken away. Those are believers who are failures in the spiritual life. They will not lose their salvation, but they will lose their inheritance in the kingdom. And then point number six. Inheriting the kingdom refers to those believers who advance to spiritual maturity and have their character renovated into the image of Christ. In the kingdom of God, character matters. Colossians 3.10 says, And have put on the new self, who is being renewed to a true knowledge, according to the image of the one who created him. I don't have time to go into it. Where Man was created before the fall in the image of God. When Adam fell, that image is distorted and perverted and tarnished because of sin, so that when Adam has a son, in Genesis 4.1 it says he is in the image of Adam. We're not talking about the physical image of a bipedal hominoid. We're talking about the internal immaterial makeup. Because the next time we talk about image in the Scriptures, you get into the New Testament and it talks about the fact that we are, in Romans 8.29, we're to be conformed to His image. So it's talking not about our physical shape, but the internal characteristic. And then Colossians 3.10 says that as believers we put on the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the One. That's what the whole process of sanctification is about is to renew us to the image of Christ. 2 Corinthians 3.18 But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed, metamorpho, being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. So you see, there is this metamorphosis from metamorpho in the Greek, this transformation. This is what we're mandated to in Romans 12:2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed, metamorpho, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. How do you renew the image of Christ in you? You renew it through taking in doctrine, renovation of your thinking. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. So you see that the goal of all of this is to renew that image into the image and character of Christ, which is then summarized for us in our next verses in Galatians 5 under the category of the fruit or the production of the Holy Spirit. This is how you can see if you have the character of Christ, and it is that character of Christ that is the basis for the determination of your reward and inheritance and possession in the kingdom with our heads bowed and our eyes closed.
Father, we thank You for the way You have explained all these things in Your Word and how they all fit together in intricate, interlocking pieces. And Father, we see that we have an inheritance and a possession in the kingdom, that it is ours, You have given it to us, it is, though, waiting for us to advance to spiritual maturity. It is ours on a contingency basis right now, and the contingency is whether or not we will have the perseverance, the endurance to stay with it, to continue to learn the Word of God, to continue to let our minds be transformed, not to think as the world thinks, but to think as Jesus Christ thinks, to let the mind of Christ be in us. Father, we pray that if there is anyone here this morning without hope, uncertain of their eternal destiny, without eternal life, we pray that right now they would take the opportunity to make that certain. Scripture says there is salvation in no other name under heaven given among men. We must believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and then we will be saved. So right now, all you have to do, if you're here this morning, uncertain of your eternal destiny, simply say, Father, I believe Jesus Christ died on the cross for my sins, and I'm relying upon that alone for my salvation. Father, we pray that you would bring these things to our mind through the filling of the Holy Spirit during the coming week, that we might be challenged by them. In Jesus' name, amen.